Hello, welcome to the Reading Room's fourth podcast, Room 4. Wow, we made it. And uh, after the live show, we come in here and talk about what happened and what you're going to hear on this month's podcast. Now, uh, what did you think of the programme this morning, Johnny? Not too bad. I mean, there are a couple of little stumbles, but, you know, we're, we're only human, aren't we? We certainly are. And it proves, it proves we have pulses. Uh, we had um, someone's mobile phone. Now, I won't, su- I won't suggest whose mobile phone it was that went off in the studio. It wasn't either of ours, you know. I mean, obviously, we're standard professionals. Um, but that person has received a yellow card. If this sort of behaviour continues, then, uh, you know, we will contact the FA. And, of course, the other stumbles were, in fact, scripted. Uh, this is just to prove that we come down here live on a Sunday morning and we don't stay in bed and just pre-record it which would be the easy option (laughs) now then on the podcast this morning you will hear from Fiona Linde Uh, she did an interview with us and she read some excerpts from her book Get Over It which is aimed at young adults dealing with bereavement we'll also hear some poetry from Lincolnshire poet Catherine Sankey the Reading Room Book Group this morning reviewed the Jane Austen Book Club, uh, which is by Karen Joy Fowler. And of course, we'll hear again from Sue Moorcroft as she talks to us about the process of writing romantic fiction. And you'll also hear the winners of the competition that we had, which was to win one of three copies of All That Malarkey, uh, which was kindly provided by Sue's publishers, Chock Lit. So thanks for downloading, and we hope you enjoy it. We'll see you on the other side. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Uh, now it's time to hear from... Uh, Catherine Sankey. Catherine got in touch with us here at the Reading Room uh, in order to record and broadcast some of her work. And we spoke to her about writing poetry, and that will be featured on a future edition of the programme. We're putting a lot together on poetry at the minute, and uh, certainly my attitude towards it. Uh, but here is the first of two poems from Catherine this morning. Nocton Hall. Nocton Hall, its glorious shell, burnt and abandoned we know so well. Faith is all, so is fire, treacherous owners do conspire. Four fires set to swell, turning history into hell. But beauty solid and shall not fall, in wild grasses haunting and tall, that gothic ruin our Nocton Hall. Nocton Hall by Catherine Sankey. You can hear more from Catherine in the second hour of the programme. Now we're going to hear from Fiona Lindley, who's the author from Nottinghamshire, who's written a book to help young adults cope with bereavement. I asked Fiona where she got the idea to write the book. This is something that I wanted to write. The idea came to me when I was uh, volunteering in a day hospice uh, as my children were growing up, and I met this lovely lady who... uh, was dying of cancer with children similar to age to my own. And I just wondered then what happened to the children. There was all this help in the day hospice for the mum. And I wondered what happened to the children. And through my working with children and understanding their issues, I looked into it further and went to help at bereavement centre. And there I found out that it was the young men, the young adult men, that uh, found this uh, uh, issue of bereavement really difficult within the family in that they put up various barriers and uh, made out they were getting over it when actually they were having quite a hard time. What sort of research did you do in, into, into looking into the book? I mean, certainly um, something we've mentioned, uh, teen speak, let's yeah. say, uh, you know, sort of get understanding the language of a teenager. Uh, luckily or unluckily, <laughs> no, I had teenagers in the house myself. My husband and I have worked in church with youth groups. I knew that to get their respect, you had to talk their language. That didn't mean swearing all the time, but knowing what they were talking about was an important thing for me. If I went in with Queen's English, so to speak, Mm. and then started talking about something that was not on their relevant scale, they would soon cut off to me. So things like skateboarding and 
the rants, things like that, um, you know, are important to them. Parks, their free time, everything that they do in their free time is their mates and where they go. Uh, where they hang out, what what they do, is all important to them. So that's what I needed to research. So I just looked in my own village, really, yeah. and had the hindsight of working in schools for over 10 years. How did you go about getting... What I have in my hand is a, is a, a lovely-looking uh, book. How did, how did you go about getting that? That doesn't come easy, that part. Um, I had been published before online, a writer's site, and so I had that luxury under my belt. And all these things, I'd, I'd run a, a local competition for a short story, and all those kind of things kind of build you up into thinking, actually, you know, you are more of an author. But this was something, this challenge, because I'd put a lot of work into this, I thought I ought to give it my best shot at getting published. And some people very dear to me uh, said, we believe in you, Fiona, we believe in what you've written, and we'd like to support you. So what happened with Onwards and Upwards Publishers is they said, if you would commit to buying 100 books, we will publish you. And with a little help from my friends and family, that's what has happened. I've got to say, it does look great. Have you you've given these or you've, you've uh, pushed these towards a uh, voluntary organisation, is that right? Yes, anywhere really where youth meet, I've tried to put one there. Yeah. I mean, I used to work in the youth services over in uh, Leicestershire, so they were one of the first people. I've got them in school libraries, I've got them in hospice libraries. Um, so that people who support young people going through difficult times, family times where there's been a loss or a bereavement, they can have these books available for not for all the family members so that they can understand because a lot of this tells of the father's story the main protagonist is a lad called Johnny but his dad uh, features in it and his response to his mum's death as well and um, it may make an adult smile but hopefully it make the young people think yeah I know what you mean so we've, we've kind of jumped perhaps the uh, the process of how you actually started writing how you first put pen to paper can you remember can you remember how how that that came about Yes, um, I've used writing to help me, actually, through uh, a personal challenge that I have myself. I uh, have um, osteoarthritis, and when I was first diagnosed with that as quite a young a younger woman, um, I uh, had a lot of problems with that, dealing with that. And so I put pen to paper, and that's when I started to think, right, I can be an advocate here for other people going through times that are quite tough. I think it's quite therapeutic, actually, writing. Yeah, it certainly is. i found that, yeah. So following that, what was the, the next step of, of, of learning, the, I suppose, learning the craft? Because, you know, here you've got a good beginning, middle and end. How, how did you go about gaining that information? Um, I joined a book club. I think that's always very uh, useful. You have to be a good reader to to be a good writer. I say this in schools to children, but I, I need to believe that. And also, as, as a teaching assistant, I need to be learning as well to be able to understand how it is to be on the other side of the fence. So I was very lucky in that I kept going with a lot of encouragement from people and I received a grant from the Arts Training Central who allowed me to get the wisdom of a mentor and a lovely lady called Gwen Grant up at Worksop gave me time every week and went over a short story with me which I thought was complete <laughs> and I took it to her and she turned it all around and said actually if you're going to look at that again let's make it make sense <laughs> so she taught me what it's 
uh, what a good book looks like because she had children's books in print for 30 years and was a very successful writer. And from there, she encouraged me and I went on to do an online course with Lancaster Uni. It's a certificate in creative writing uh, where I learned the skill of looking at other people's work and, and learning from that. Critiquing is the word. I see. Uh, but you ha- with, as a critiquer, you, you are sensitive to how it would feel being, being on the other side of the fence. Yeah. So I think that's helped me with my teaching assistant role as well in that I tend to understand where ideas are coming from and maybe not quash them as wrong. And my work in schools as a lunchtime re- writing club, we've had great fun. And I've taken away some of the barriers that children have in the classroom and said, you write what's that important to you. That's certainly what I do. And although I've not got a bestseller maybe, I feel as though I've done a good job. And she certainly has. And our thanks to Fiona. And if you work with or know any organisation that works with young adults who would find this book very helpful, uh, you can get in contact with Fiona through her publishers that are Onwards and Upwards or through us here at the Reading Room. And we're going to be featuring uh, Fiona on the website uh, as soon as Johnny and I get round to it. And uh, also Fiona was generous enough to leave us some copies. So, uh, yeah, certainly give us an email at readingroom at sirenonline.co.uk if you think that those books are going to be helpful. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Before that track, you heard an interview with Fiona Lindley and uh, the author of Get Over It. And uh, Fiona's used the contrasting locations of Greece and the East Midlands to help her show and their different responses the way family members deal with the loss. Now, in the first chapter called About Me, Running Away, it's set in Greece and it introduces us to Johnny. I first met Athena when we dropped anchor in the bay. She was about my age and gorgeous with all this long black hair. She was just smiling at me from outside her dad's calf, but it was her incredible smile that reminded me of my far-off mum. So I made sure I bumped into Athena not long after we got there, and that's when she told me where her name came from. Only this Greek goddess diva. I'm named after the Madonna statue, the one that looks over us from the hilltop, she'd said. Wow, came my lame response. Her big eyes got me. The goosebumps she gave me were good. I could cope with them. They masked the empty feeling and let me blank out the only woman who ever meant anything to me. I had to face it that for this holiday it was only my dad and me doing the Greek islands. Not conventionally, but the cool way. Later on in the book, Johnny faces nothing to look forward to back home. Things were happening after the return flight. The countryside looked so green without the lush Greek island colours, and the fields had pencil-drawn perfect boundaries. I was surprised at how neat it looked as we drove back from Nottingham. Rattling along in Paul's primer-splattered fiesta, we clunked over the canal bridge. Back in our village, I sank down in my seat. A plant store was begging for another random cause. My carefree stuff dropped away for those chains, restraining my breathing. Slowly does it. Don't panic, I said to myself, biting my lip. As we came past the park, I cramped my neck out to see if I could spot a 360 kickflip being done on the half-bite. No such luck, down to the rain. The mates had run for cover in the youth shelter. A cloud of smoke gave them away. They should have squeezed in the corner shop. That would be much healthier. The lovely, tempting corner shop that oozed out wicked bacon smells. Are we stopping for a butty or what? I asked. I thought it was worth a try. No such luck. 
Your Aunt Joan will go mad if you missed a homecoming lunch. It won't hurt you to wait a couple of hours, Dad told me, and I couldn't believe that Paul didn't even slow down. They should give me a break. In a chapter called Taking Back Control, Johnny relates to how his mum felt towards the end of her life. Dad told me he'd talked about going over Mum's letter time and again, and how he'd got stuck. These letters of Mum's were proving to be high impact. They got us questioning and talking. How clever was that? What he couldn't get his head round was a bit where she put, "I know I'm healed." That was a hard one, as she did actually go and die on him. Then Janet from the hospice explained that there wasn't a cure for her cancer. Not this secondary sod. She thought what Annie had meant was she'd come to terms with her illness and knew that her life was to end. This was because she'd looked to God. My eyes felt that they were about to pop out my head, down to my dad spouting all this off. He was describing how she put it to him. It was great he'd taken in so much. He said Jesus is like this bridge to God, heaven, and eternal life. Janet told me, so that's why Annie didn't worry for herself. Didn't mean she didn't care about leaving us either. It's just she was trusting God to look after us. He smiled. Janet had helped him get his head round Mum's happiness in the last days, despite all the aggro. He had put it down to morphine before, but now he knew. <laughs> The Reading Room Book Group. Welcome. It's time to grab the comfy seat and a cup of tea as we review this month's book, as ever chosen from the Lincolnshire Library's Reading Group list. So there's a good chance that some of you will have read The Jane Austen Book Club by Karen Joy Fowler. And joining us in the studio, as mentioned earlier, we have Jill from Waterstones in Lincoln, the High Street branch, we should be quite specific in saying. <laughs> Is there any rivalry there, Jill, between the two branches? No, we're all jolly good friends. I knew you were going to say that now. <laughs> then. Uh, Julie uh, Catterson from the Bishop Greaves Theatre. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. Jolly good. Right, OK. Now then, who's going to start us off and tell us, before I have my two penneth worth on this <laughs> one, uh, on what they thought? Uh, Jill, I'm going to go to you first. Okay. What did you think? Well, my first impressions of the book, we talked about covers last month, didn't we? Yes, we did, um, yeah. I thought it was going to be quite chitlity. Um, it had got a quote on the front by Alice Seabold, whose book I don't like at all, and I thought, <laughs> well, this isn't going to be my sort of thing. But actually, I did enjoy it. I, I enjoy Austin. I've read Austin. And um, I enjoyed it much better than I thought I would do, although I do have some mixed feelings about it. But I felt it was, like the Austin novels, it was perfectly constructed, perfectly formed, everything tied in at the end. And uh, yes, all, all in all, a much better experience than I anticipated. I see. Now, Julie, you come along with uh, well, what might be called a sick note this morning because you've not finished the book yet, have I you? I have to apologise <laughs> and admit right from the start. Um, I've read about well over two-thirds of it, but I haven't completed it. I see. Um, what do you think so far? I have very mixed feelings about it. I'm enjoying it, but I do feel that, having read the start of it, that it's not something that I would have chosen myself. Um, I mean, luckily, I have read all of Jane Austen's novels. I think if you hadn't read them, you're going to really struggle to find uh, anything to resonate with with this book. Because um, it's, it's almost like doing a pub quiz. Because all the way through, she's using references and little tips of information, and you've got to be very quick to kind of place those into a context and, and follow what she's saying. Um, so I do feel like I've um, had to use my brain a lot more than I like to when I'm reading. I just like to read and enjoy a story. Yeah. Yeah, I see. I see. I completely understand that. Now, my thoughts about let's get this over with. My thoughts on this is that when we started 
the reading room and the book group especially it was a case of my I, I chose the first six books and I wanted books that I would challenge and push myself with and things that I wouldn't pick off the shelf if I was in uh, a shop or a library uh, and this certainly comes under those categories however it alienates me for a couple of reasons mainly uh, because I've read no Jane Austen at all we didn't even cover it at school and I think in your and email that's a shame I know in your email to me how Jill, did you manage that uh, <laughs> because between the years of 1987 to 1992 I attended the city school in Lincoln some people will know what I'm talking about there. <laughs> um, and, yeah, we, to be honest, we hardly touched any of the classics. I, I don't remember any Shakespeare. Now, this could well be, because I spent those years staring out of the window, looking I at trees. you were playing trees. music. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was listening to, you know, Depeche Mode and, you know, sulking about a bit, I suppose. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll leave my own private hell there for a while. Um, but also, really, because I think this is a bit like picking up a copy of Cosmopolitan at some point not exactly like that but just the way I felt was like I'm, I'm diving into an area I shouldn't be reading I don't know I'd say Jane Austen kind of is a very female readership this book mm-hmm. I want to say is as well but not exclusively it's more it's very character driven um, so I think that broadens the scope quite a lot it is a book for Janeites really mm. um, it's it, the, it's structured like an Austen novel um, it's the characters are all linked into Austen characters and it is really a book for Austen lovers I don't mm. think you can get away from that and I don't think there was much in it for anybody who isn't I, I don't yeah. think it would take you to, the, to Austen I think if you read it as you have yeah. and haven't read Austen I don't think it's going to make you run off and pick up Pride and Prejudice next week is it? No it's not no. No, which no. is a shame because I think it's done with a great affection and love for Austen from, on the author's part but I don't think it would achieve that It's also done with a great deal of self-awareness and there's certain moments when you're reading it when you suddenly think I'm very aware that I'm reading a book right now rather than following a story mm. I mean there are other moments where you're completely Im- immersed in a story and immersed in a character but sometimes I do feel that she's almost trying too hard to pay homage to Jane Austen um, and it does kind of make you very conscious throughout reading mm. whereas if you, when you're reading Austen she is a very good novelist yeah. her world is very real this is a construct about Austen it's not a a realist novel in that sense. And it's it? so formulaic, which isn't a bad thing. I can see why she's gone with that structure, but it's so formulaic in that each chapter you have a novel from Jane Austen that they're studying and a character from within this world that you're focusing on and understanding their history. Yeah. So after the first kind of chapter, you straight away you can realise, I know what to expect going forward, um, which is partly comforting. There and partly is some pleasure in that. I yeah. think I, maybe I'm near one end of the spectrum than I should be or something, but <laughs> I, find, I do find some pleasure in that. And there's the business like there is, um, towards the end of the book, there is the dance. In every Austen book, there is the dance, where with all the sexual tensions and delay, difficult journeys and all that, that occurs here as well. Um, in an Austen book, they do the Shakespearean going out into the countryside and having a, um, a, a time of chaos and then coming back into society. They do that. They go to the beach. It, it, it's very, very tightly put together, which is a pleasure in some ways, but it's not um, an escapist read at all. No. Which is the sort that I like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, my, my reading uh, habits are so hard, such that I do it on you know breaks at work and things like that, and I really want to escape. And uh, yeah, I, I, this this was certainly a chore, shall I say? What do you think about the book stylistically? Because I thought I was confused at times about who the narrator was, whether it was another person in the book group or that's thrown me throughout. It might be because I haven't finished reading it yet, so I'm kind of hoping that you'll understand that at the end. But I have a feeling that you won't. No, you have no, a, I don't think so. A really, yeah, is that the case? <laughs> you have a really confused. Using narrator who claims to be the collective of 
the book group, wasn't the soul of a book group, without ever claiming to be any one person. So there's a kind of omniscience there, which is difficult. It doesn't quite come together. Yeah. I, I think what she's trying to do is very good, but I don't think the skills are quite there to do it, almost. Because... I think by taking that narrative perspective, again, it's, it becomes very self-conscious, um, and you, you again you become very aware at those points that you're reading a book because um, you're not sure where the narrator's sitting in the story at all. Yeah, yeah. we're sounding quite negative there, but actually, I quite I, I, um, <laughs> we're, we're picking it to bits for the sake, I think, a little bit. But it actually, if you read Jane Austen, it it does it, it was a pleasure, and after I'd finished. Um, it made me re- realise that the one book I wasn't as familiar with as the others was Persuasion, um, which I read when I was very young and thought uh, Anne Elliot was, was a wet wimp and didn't like her a lot. And I thought that's the one that I should read again. So on the basis of this, I then read Persuasion again and from a, an older point of view, thoroughly enjoyed it, thoroughly enjoyed the character. And it, um, so it did do that for me. It did take me back into the bit where I had a gap. Okay, so as a... As a, um, a, a novice, <laughs> where, would, where would you point me with Austin? Where would you point me to start? Northanger Abbey. Do you think? Yeah. <coughs> How come? <laughs> it's a book about reading. It's a book about books. And it's lighter. And it's, um, it, it is, um, the characters are less um, heavily drawn, I think. I think it's a, an easiest, the easiest read. What would you say, Julie? I'm going to go for the obvious and say Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because, maybe because I'm quite a young woman, it's a book that I can really relate to more than the others. Because um, each of Jane Austen's books do kind of pick out particular points in your life, really. Um, and I do like the, the tangle of society and, and the love story that goes through us. And I think it's one that a lot of girls do kind of wish w- they were in. Um, is that something to do with Colin Firth and Mr Darcy? No, it's not, no? actually, because I I'd read it before I watched that film. Oh. Uh, I'm also quite a fan of the Kevin Knightley version as well, so it's oh. so no Colin Firth for me. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but no, I, I just I think but that's just what draws you to a story, really. It's, I, I like the characters and the journeys they go through, and that's why I choose that one. Um, but this book, the Jane Austen Book Club, for anybody who has read even a little bit of Jason's novels, but not all of them, I think it would spur you on to read more because you realise what you're missing. Um, and even though I have read more going back and, and then reading this, it makes you think, oh, actually, there's a lot that I don't know, but I thought I knew, but I'm going to now have to go back and revisit. Um, so it celebrates reading and it stimulates reading, I think. Hmm. And the other thing that I thought was quite interesting about a book about a book club is the nature of book clubs because there are so many around now not just in this form but obviously in people's rooms all over the country really yes um and what reading books i'm talking about them does is make people talk about very personal things in a a forum and quite personally with people that they don't know very well and uh, i think it does throw up the pleasures and maybe dangers of uh, talking to strangers about books it doesn't usually there's a glass of wine added to it which i'm we can't offer you this morning i'm afraid However, we will be going to the office later. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Our panellists who can't be with us this morning, we have uh, quite a few joining us up now. Uh, now, Melanie Carroll, uh, she starts out, and um, uh, there's no doubting where she sits in this. I hated it. <laughs> I'd have to admit that if I had to say anything about my, my response, and believe me, this doesn't happen very much at all, to bypass the book, 
and watch the DVD instead as that's much more enjoyable than the book. I'm looking around at shocked faces. The thing is, the storyline is pretty good. A bunch of women with issues and lives meeting together at a book club, a specific book club, so to read through the collections of works of Austin. Into this comes a man who's never read Austin and is intended as a love interest by one woman for another woman. And yes, you have a great basis for a story that looks at love, literature and the tragic comedy that is life. The problem with the book for me, as against the film, is that the book is just trying too hard and falling flat. In terms of style, it places, <clears throat> in places it seems as if the author has tried to write as Austin and failed. And the characters were just too flat for me. They lacked real substance and didn't really engage me. On the whole, it just felt disjointed and lacking the depth it was really needed for a good book. However, the basis of the film was a good synopsis for the screenwriters. So there we go, my feelings on the book. Don't buy the book, rent the DVD. I think it's the only other book I've honestly said this about is Captain Corelli's Mandolin, which is a terrible film, so the book must have been. Um, The book was very good. Was it? Oh, right. (laughs) However, it's entirely possible that I'm fully willing to accept this, uh, that it says more about me than the books. Let's go back. I want to sneak into something that Mel says there about films and books. Is Is there any film and book that you think the film is better than the book? There's a book and a film that I think stand up extremely well and that is atonement um the the book is marvelous it's a wonderful book and but the middle chunk of it is about uh, a soldier at war a good third of the middle of the book is about wartime experiences which is harrowing and unpleasant they replace that in the film with a short sequence of a big widescreen sea of poppies with a soldier walking through the middle which replaces a whole third of a book but as a, as a visual image replacing words that we know exactly what that means yeah. and I think it, it's a very good thing that I think those it can be done if you do it differently mm. and keep the spirit Julie? I think there's so much contention at the moment um, in our culture between books and films and deciding which does it better I think the important thing is that they do them differently um, and use their medium properly because books are very personal and you put as much of yourself into what you're reading as you take out from the words. Um, whereas with a film, you know, a lot of it is more delivered to you visually and there's it, it, no arguing with what they're trying to say. Mm. Um, so, yeah, some stories translate better as, as films and, and vice versa. Um, I'm going to be very much in the fence on this one. I'm really sorry. No, no, that's fine. No, <laughs> I, I am going to... Well, I'll stick my neck out. I don't care. Go for it. Harry Potter... I can't get into the books at all. Really tried, really wanted to. Even got a grown-up copy, you know, don't look down. And <laughs> can't, can't get into it. Tried the audio book, read by the wonderful Stephen Fry. You know, everyone knows I love him. Fantastic. And I, I love his other audio books. I uh, recently listened to The Star's Tennis Balls. Absolutely fantastic. Loved it. Can't get into it. Even when he does that funny Hermione voice. And that's probably what put me off, I think. <laughs> uh, but the films I just find absolutely knockout. Absolutely sensational. And just getting better and better. Although the next one's in 3D. So we'll wait and see. Now we have another email in from uh, Cheryl Cliff, who was on last month's programme, uh, guest with you, wasn't she, Jill? Okay. Uh, to be honest, I finished this book feeling slightly puzzled and unsure about whether I'd enjoyed it or not. I like the overall idea and the layout of the book example the concept of each chapter dedicated to a Jane Austen novel combined with an insight into the life member of the book club Fowler seemed to be making links between Austen's characters and her own characters especially in the case of Jocelyn with famous with the obvious parallels of Emma's matchmaking attempts although I applaud Fowler's efforts to bring Jane Austen into the 21st century I'm not sure whether the book would encourage readers who hadn't already read Austen to rush out and read her books at times I found the book club's discussions about Austen a little tedious 
and um, it w- that's halfway through I'll come back in a second but that, that certainly it didn't push me towards Austin yeah. I mean, I've got to say I've got to say I think we all agree on that and for me the most intriguing thing about the book was the narrative structure the book seemed to be written in the first person from the viewpoint of a member of the book club however despite comments such as most of what we knew about Jocelyn came from Sylvia and we see a lot less of Allegra these days it became apparent that the narrator was not a member of the book group but rather a third person omniscient narrator that's omniscient, omniscient narrator. Throughout the book, I was expecting some sort of a further twist which would explain the strange narrative structure, but it never came. Austin's Northanger Abbey warns about the act of misreading, so maybe it had something to do with this. But on a lighter note, I quite like Grig, the, Grig's character and his subtle defence of science fiction novels. Rather than being inspired to reread Austin, I finished the book with the intention of seeking out some Ursula Le Guin novels. I'll keep you posted. Let's hope you do, Shell. Thank you very much for that. Um, now, are you, uh, on an email you sent to me, Joe, you were talking about when you lend someone a book. Now, does that come from the grid character in the science fiction books? Yes, well, um, at one point in the, in the story, he gives somebody a book um, which she finds difficult to read. Um, it's not her genre. She she doesn't read it. But then he's asking her what she thought about it. And I thought it just raised an interesting point: is should we give people books? And if we do, should we expect them to read them? Do we give people books? I'm, I I struggle with being given books. I've got to say, I do. I, I don't. I, I'm always telling people, and let's face it, you know, that's why I'm here <laughs> uh, to tell, <laughs> tell people what I think they should be reading. But if someone lends me a book or says you should read this, very rare I do. Very rare I do. And uh, finally, on the email this morning from uh, Catherine in Lincoln, um, she's got a, a few words to uh, put together. She did not fall head over heels with this novel, uh, and as declared by the Daily Mail on the back cover, uh, she found the book tedious to say tedious to say the least. The characters were uninteresting and boring and the wit where was it the only good thing that the young characters were as uninteresting as the more mature and as I am more mature I would not like to think readers were thinking as all of this ilk I've not read any Jane Austen due to the rebelling against the prose in my youth I was just coming round to putting my feelings aside and reviewing my way of thinking this book unfortunately has not given me any encouragement so Julie can we end on a positive note for I you? actually now feel I have to defend the book okay. <laughs> I really do okay we're getting you um, off that fence this morning aren't we yeah I actually did find points of it very funny and there were moments I mean maybe it was in jokes but if you have to read Jane Austen to appreciate because that person who emailed in says they haven't actually read Jane Austen so maybe they couldn't connect to the book at all Um, but there were some very funny points in the book and I did think that the characters um, yeah there were moments where you were pulled in I mean even I said earlier that Yes, I was quite detached as I was self-conscious reading. There were moments when she drew you into the stories and the histories of the characters, um, and you did feel for them, and those bits were very powerful, but I think they didn't pull through all the way through, and that's the problem, is the book was kind of... I think the book was just a bit too confused. That's a real shame. Um, But I did enjoy that there was... There were moments of humour in there as well. Okay, well, thank you both very much for your contributions this morning. Next month's book is Black Swan Green by David Mitchell. Not that David Mitchell. So if you've bought your book, if your book group has read this, then we'd love to know what you thought. Email readingroom at sirenonline.co.uk. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Unentitled. Ignore me. I abhor me. Late night tragedy. Is anyone reading me? I'm not breathing, I'm letting go. Sink deep into what I know. Late night self-pity, looking for a reaction. Praise is the attraction, but you won't hear me. The dumb poet of society. 
And that was an entitled by Catherine Sankey. Last month, we heard uh, the first in our series of interviews with the writer Sue Moorcroft. We discussed, amongst other things, about how Sue got started in her writing career. And you can hear the first part of that on last month's podcast. And a link will be available as soon as we work out the technology on our page of the Siren FM website, um, which will be uh, next week. Today we'll hear from Sue in two parts, and also announce the winners of the competition to win a copy of Sue's novel, All That Malarkey, by, and they've been provided by Sue's publishers, the brilliantly named Chalk Lit. And we'll be discussing the writing process in detail, with plotting and characterisation. I started by asking uh, Sue, what happens at the planning stage? My first novels I didn't plan that well, but the first book I got published I had planned, so I don't think that's a coincidence. So what I tend to do is... I have an aim in mind. I know the end. I know who's going to end up with who and why. And I start with character. Character's very important to me. So I scribble and I will start kind of in the middle of a character and start writing about them. And somewhere in that process, and it is only scribble, it's just thoughts, I stop writing in the third person and start writing in the first person and become that character. And this is something I bang on about a lot, becoming your character. And I do whole workshops, you know, half-day workshops on it. It's a lot like method acting, I think. You just simply become the character and think how they think. And you look at the world through their eyes. And so I do that with my central characters. And then I move on to my secondary characters. And I'm very interested in the history of characters because I find some of the material for their personality in their history. If you've been publicly dumped at work for instance, it might put you off going out with anybody from the office again. And so history affects your future life. And so I'm very keen on that. And so by the time I finish that process, I know some things that are going to happen to those characters. And I already know the end. I know I've got to begin with a bang. So I've got to find somewhere good to begin. Because I write romantic fiction, that is going to put the hero and heroine together quite quickly very quickly in the case of all that malarkey because she drives into the back of his truck so that's an interesting sort of introduction and so it comes together for me a bit like a dot to dot puzzle and I never plot in a linear fashion like it is a flow chart because I get tunnel vision then and that's the only way I can see things happening and it stops me having better ideas but if I plan what we used to call in primary school spider and balloon that they call a mind map now all over the page then I will plot a route through it. I can see the best route through it. And, I, and other people do that with cards or sticky notes and put them all on the mm-hmm. wall or all over the floor. But I have the huge sketch pads, A3 pads, and open it out into a spread, and I write all over it. And when I know about half the book's worth, then I'm getting really anxious to start. But that first chapter, I might write and rewrite but it doesn't matter and even if I throw it away in the end it doesn't matter because it's got me writing and I'm a big believer in jumping into the story and this is what I tell students to do. If we concentrate on All That Malarkey and we, we look at uh, characterisation so in All That Malarkey the, the heroine is Cleo now where did she come from? Well her name came from somebody who works in my bank because I just saw it on her name tag and thought what a cool name so my next heroine is going to be called Cleo And she's nothing like that person. The actual person came from a magazine. I was reading a a women's magazine. I can't remember which one. And it had one of those makeover things where they got eight ordinary women, as they called them, which is quite patronising, really, and told them what was wrong or how they... It was like a Trini and Susanna type thing, how you could dress yourself to minimise this and emphasise that. And the other seven were very receptive 
and accepted, you know, the, the, the tall one would never wear flatties again and she would always hold her shoulders back because that's how she realised she looked better and all that. But there was this one who had a sort of slightly Slavic look to her and uh, she had gorgeous black hair, really lovely black hair. But she wasn't, I think, what the magazine was looking for and they told her she was top-heavy and uh, she had to do her makeup to change the shape of her eyes. And I could just see her standing there. I could just tell by the expression on her face. She liked her eyes and she liked being top heavy and she didn't mind being short. And I could see that she was the kind of woman that a man would like more than a woman would like, perhaps. Um, and she really just looked at me and thought, I will do what I think is best. And she became Cleo. And it's the only time I've ever done it. I actually cut that picture out and had it up um, on my computer you know beside my computer screen which some writers do all the time and that's the only time I've ever done it she so much was clear how did you build her from that initial perception I like to know where somebody is now where the book starts are they married are they where are they living what kind of place what kind of job what kind of car do they drive um, major life events are another, are another thing um, whether they have been divorced already whether they've just been made redundant um, whether they've got a physical disability even whether they dye their hair or wear a wig or something these things if it's important to them and it comes to me then I want to know it fairly early on the members of her family as well are important whether she gets on with her family whether she's estranged because if you write characters who have no family it's quite odd but career is very important and Cleo's career is particularly important because she's in training so her job is very much she's sent to meet people um, and she perhaps never sees them at again after that day but she has to spend all day convincing them that this is the right way to do this particular thing whether it's to interact with other members of the workforce or whether it's junior management you know these horrible courses people send you on where you have to um, work out how to save the world with 11 people and a dog or something <laughs> and that is very much part of her character because she's a very engaging person and she can think on her feet and so these kind of things are very basic to me in developing the character. How do you decide on on the character motivation is it is that what drives the character? Yeah, I, I like to know that. Um, with Cleo, we begin with a, a big problem where um, her husband has launched into a giant strop and threatened to leave her and she doesn't understand why. And that motivates her to go and be naughty, really, because she's cross with him. And so she goes to a nightclub on her own, searching for her sister. And if she didn't have that motivation, the reader wouldn't have sympathy with her going to a nightclub and misbehaving. But because her husband has been so unreasonable, going to look for her sister and basically get drunk is something quite a lot of people would do in that situation. What sort of characteristics do you avoid giving to a heroine? Well, you've got to make her likeable. But in this day and age, she's got to be quite an individual person and not be anybody's doormat. Um, the days, if, even if you read something from 1970, which I did last week, just as a kind of a, an experiment, really, the woman always had a job that was less important than the man. But we got equality in the mid-70s, and it's taken a while to kick in. But now you must have a heroine who is comfortable in her own skin, and she's anybody's equal. It doesn't matter who earns more, but she won't be his secretary anymore so you must not have a doormat and really you don't need a heroine who it's called on the romance site is too stupid to live because if she just does things with no you know no sensible woman would do then the reader will lose patience and they won't want to know what happens to her so those are two main things in writing 
my kind of fiction. She mustn't be a doormat and she mustn't be too stupid. And what about the differences of writing male and female characters? For what I write, the female is generally slightly more prominent. It is her story. Whatever quest or mission she is on is what's going to be the central thread. And his will sort of twist around that and impact on it. And she will generally impact on him, probably in some negative ways. I quite like the heroine upsetting the hero quite regularly. So you have to make sure her motivation is true. But I think for a hero, I tend to think of him as a fantasy figure. I suppose for me, because I can only be inside one head and that's mine. Whereas the heroine is more somebody I would like to have as my best mate. And so that's kind of how I look at them for the start. Great stuff. Thanks to Sue. You're going to hear more of Sue after the next track. But first, before that, last month we set up a competition to win a copy of Sue Moorcroft's novel, All That Malarkey. Uh, Sue's publishers, Chocolate, uh, sent us three copies to give away. And the winners were drawn out of my hat, and it was an actual hat, on Friday. And uh, the winners are... There we go. What a drum roll. Uh, the winners are Helen Brewer, Mike Hodges and Tom. Now, Tom didn't put his surname on the email, but we'll be in touch with him and the other winners by email for their details. Uh, now, congratulations to the winners and thanks to everyone who took part for that. And now we return to Sue Moorcroft as we continue our discussion about the process of writing romantic fiction, in particular characterisation. I asked Sue if there are any traits that you wouldn't give to a hero. You wouldn't want him to be dishonest unless he is a Danny Ocean type character from Ocean's Eleven where he's, you know, he is he is a crook, but he's a lovable rogue. Mm, charming, but, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And his motives would have to be good. I mean, just dishonest as in lying to everybody is not going to cut it as a hero. That's not heroic. And one thing that came up during this search over and over again that women found irresistible was for a man to be funny. Somebody who could make them laugh and shared their sense of humour, I suppose. I think, you know, other things like um, intelligent and sexy and kind you would expect in greater or lesser degrees. And even if the kindness is hidden under quite a crusty exterior, quite often you will get hero and heroine on stage really butting heads to start off with. And you do see in, you know, in life, people who knock sparks off each other sooner or later will end up together. I've seen it several times, quite volatile relationships. But the spark, they just didn't recognise it for what it was in the beginning, I suppose. What are the classic mistakes, would you say? Uh, when when creating characters or, or coming along with characterization in the relationship? Well, I think the main thing is what I've been talking about is you get them on stage and they butt heads, that's fine, but you've got to give them a way back. If they really hate each other, you know, if he strangles her cat or something, you're never going <laughs> to... That's never occurred to me as a plot point till now. Um, <laughs> you're never going to be able to get them together if they hate each other too much. And I think that's a classic mistake. I think that... Uh, I see a lot of beginner writers' novels because I praise manuscripts for the Romantic Novelist Association and they will do exactly that and they make the man so hateful that then you can't... And it's always the man they make hateful. I think they write out some of their issues, you know, mm. a bit cathartic. But you say, well, she she wouldn't... I'm sorry, she wouldn't have done that. And they make the outgoing relationship if they're in a relationship at the start of the book and they're in a different one by the end of the book, which is quite common. They make the outgoing man so horrendous that you think, well, she's an intelligent woman. She wouldn't have stood for it. Mm. She wouldn't have stayed with him. 
And so you have to be careful to make people be able to get back and to make them change and go through that journey in a plausible way. So we've talked there about the, the, the main characters. And what, what about the rest? What are, what are they for? The, the supporting cast, you might say. Well, they are a supporting cast, and I think they fall into two categories. One um, would be the secondary characters, and then the others are the walk-on characters. So in all that malarkey, for instance, Cleo has a sister, Liza, who she depends upon as her shoulder to cry on and when things go wrong she goes and finds her sister's sister and that relationship became quite popular to the extent that i think the book that comes out in november 2011 is actually going to be about liza i'm going to make her the central character that's the i've talked to my publisher about it and they're very keen on that so i think that's what's going to happen um so she's very important people don't exist in isolation as i think i said but they have workmates and they have neighbors and sometimes those people interact but you've got to be careful to still keep the central character central because a secondary character can be quite interesting and you think oh i wonder what she did when he said that you know what did she think when her sister's husband said that to her and look at it from her point of view and you've got to discipline yourself not to so they come after the central character or primary character, you have the secondary characters. We've got to know them reasonably well, but not like our best friends. They've got to be somewhere a little lower. And then you have the walk-ons who are just like taxi drivers or something, and they might have a few words. They might be important because they might even say something which changes something somebody does. But if you go into where they were born and what their favourite food is and everything, it misleads the reader into thinking they're going to be important, then they're not. And something you do um, going going through your books, you bring other characters back. This is not a, a, a serialisation or a, a trilogy or anything like that, but you do bring uh, characters back, don't you, to, uh, I suppose, it shows where they went. That, that's right, and it's it's worked out. I think I did it in starting over. The central character, central hero is Miles Arnott Rattenbury, who's known for most of the book as Ratty. I think I just was reluctant. I think I'd been in love with him. And I was reluctant to completely let him go, even though I'm afraid I was unfaithful to him with Justin from All That Malarkey, because <laughs> I fell in love with him as well. And I think if I do, other people will, you know, so that's fine. And it's nice and safe, and my husband doesn't mind me falling in love with people who are in my head. Um, <laughs> But I think I was reluctant to leave the village of Middle Dip, which I'd created and so enjoyed being in. And I was reluctant not to just have a last little look at Ratty. And so he has a cameo role in starting over. He becomes Cleo's landlord at one time. And um, I enjoyed doing that. And we've had a lot of positive feedback. People saying they like that little look at Ratty and to see that, yeah, it worked out for him and he's all loved up. So that's what really made me think about taking Liza forward so that these books are connected and some of my books will be connected and some will not. Yeah, yeah. so I think something I spoke about on uh, on our programme a couple of months ago was uh, the feeling of loss you get after finishing a good book and missing the characters. Exactly, exactly. And people keep saying that to me, but I don't think you can successfully do a sequel to a romance because what can you do apart from take them apart and that would kill me, so I couldn't do that. So to have a little look at them and see them happy I think is is a nice and and it's nice also to get to know other people in the village like the lady at the village shop Gwen who is nosy frankly <laughs> she helps my plot along sometimes yeah. because she'll ask nosy questions and that's helpful let's think about the un- unseen characters uh, they're, they're a famous they're indoors of Arthur Daly I, I remember that greatly yeah uh, so what, what would the function of that character be Well, in All That Malarkey, it was Cleo's mother because we just felt that it would have been odd to kill both her parents or have them in Australia 
And so we had this, this relationship where you never see her mother, but she occasionally says nasty things to her. It impacted on Cleo's life, but we never saw her. And it gave the sisters something to talk about. And it allowed Liza to take over the role that perhaps with other some other women, the mother might have done, sort of as confidant and stuff. So, um, yeah, I quite liked her... To make sure Cleo had a mother, she was normal, if you like. She yeah. was, because if you have if you have no mother, people might start to ask why, and then that can become a plot point. You know, well, the mother's dead. Well, how did she die? And that changes Cleo then. And yeah. so, um, my agent said to me, "I think you've got to put more family round her than only her sister." And so I just put them off stage. It yeah. worked very well. Actually, what you said at the the beginning of that struck a chord uh, when you said deciding not to kill both of them. It's, it's, you know, that, that, that's quite a strong... It seems like a, a strong thing, uh, you know, to, to even talk about. You know, do, do, yeah. do you know what I mean? Yeah. With Want to Know a Secret, I was still with my agent when I first wrote that book, and she said I had to kill somebody. And I said, no, no. <laughs> that won't be right, I want this to happen and that to happen. No, no, that would be even better, she said, if if that person died. And I don't want to say who it is. And as I got further in the book, I could see she had to go. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it is a bit godlike. Yeah. You know, and my books are entertaining, but they do have some grittier bits. And that is that is something I've had positive feedback from readers as well. Oh, thanks to Sue, and uh, we'll continue that discussion next month uh, as we as we go through various other stages of writing romantic fiction. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Hi, me again. Thanks for downloading and listening to the fourth podcast from The Reading Room. Next month, we're going to hear more from Catherine Sankey, and we have a short story from local author Richard Barter. And the book group will be reviewing Black Swan Green by David Mitchell. So please tune in Sunday the 1st of November at 10am here on Siren 107.3 FM.